Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to a member of the groundbreaking band Chibomato about community and what she calls the new optimism. We chatted with an intersex activist about power and pronouns, and we discussed the controversy surrounding an iconic Pilsen building. All this plus the Trump diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for June 30th, 2017. Radio Free spoke to Miho Hattori of Chibomato about New York in the 1990s, crossing the East River, community, and the new optimism. The full interview with Hattori will air on Independence Day. Radio Free airs every Tuesday drive time from 4 to 6 p.m. Free Bridgeport, I'm John Daly. We're here with Jamie Trecker once again, and we have a special guest, so we wanted to get to you uh, guys. We have Michael Daly in the studio, who has brought a special friend in from New York, and... Uh, we have Miho Hattori. What's up? Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So you've had a really busy weekend. Oh, yeah. So you were in town with the uh, the folks from Diamond Terrifier mm-hmm. Cypher, new project, right? Yes. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so this is a project, new project with uh, uh, Sam Hilma from Z's. Um, new York, I would say, experimental, yeah, best band. And um, uh, Michael Beher and Don DeVore, and me, the four-piece band. I would say it's a, yeah, super New York, current New York experimental music. Miho, you played uh, at a very interesting location on on Saturday evening. Um, So you guys were at Bohemian National Cemetery. That's right, yeah. How, how was it to play there? I mean, we were we were out in the audience, and actually, DJ Rickshaw was was one of the part of the crew that was mm-hmm. producing the event for you yeah. from WLPN. Yeah, that was quite amazing experience. I mean, first of all, like the weather was wicked, so we really enjoyed the atmosphere as well. But I was really worried about like um, we gonna play in uh, between the graves, you know. <laughs> So I'm glad like it was more like a flat land, you know, um, beautiful spaces. So You wouldn't have liked to play between the graves? <laughs> I didn't want to. So <laughs> Have you been to Hollywood Forever where they do stage the uh, shows between the graves? No. In LA? Yes, they do. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty punk rock. It is. So maybe next time. Maybe next time. Oh yeah. So for people that don't know, you were in a in a band, uh, a New York band, uh, Chimamato, that mm-hmm. was around. Um, I wondered if you could just back up and talk a little bit about that era of New York music for our listeners who may not be familiar with it. Your band was very popular, kind of mid '90s, and you were in a a real rush of talent at that time. Sonic Youth was obviously very big, Blonde Redhead, yeah. the Matador scene. Can you talk a little bit about what that gave you as a musician and what you what came out of that for you? Um, that time of the New York City, everything was happening in the downtown, I feel. So it's such a small world and um, um, in, a, let's say, East Village in the Lower East Side. Um, so you could basically meet everyone in the, such a small space. And that creates a lot of um, different mindset from right now. Mm-hmm. And especially now, like, you know, without internet and everything, we have to get some kind of information on the street. I think that was like uh, um, the source of the culture of back in time. I actually moved to Chicago at that time from the Lower East Side oh, really? in New York. So d- just to 
take us back a little bit. You, you make a really interesting point. There were a lot of magazines, a lot of zines, a yes. lot of fly posting yeah. that doesn't exist today because there was no internet. That's how people found out about it. And of course, you were part of Grand Royal, which was the Beastie Boys label. They had a very popular magazine that lasted a few issues that people looked at as kind of a downtown Bible. Yeah. Um, but that seems very different now. Yes. Uh, do you do you still hang out in that place where the rents are now astronomical and uh, there's Starbucks in every corner? I do. <laughs> I'm still there um, doing kind of same thing. But uh, now it's extending. Now I need to go to Ridgewood, um, Queens, mm-hmm. or Bushwick, sometimes like a Bed-Stuy mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, and getting more further to get to those kind of more, I will say, underground, some you know, lit culture. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting because when I was there, we never would look to go to Brooklyn at all. It was like going to the end of the earth or your grandma's house. Mm. You never went there to see a show. And now most of the shows, even Williamsburg is, I think, now kind of unhip. Things have moved out of Williamsburg. Yes. I think uh, I'm thinking about about it a lot and talking a lot about this kind of thing with my friends. I think it's about sound. We cannot create big sound and a a lot of bass with subwoofer in Manhattan right now because of like it's pretty much like you know corporated and a residential area so um, a lot of great venue have to go out to the city to have the space and a big um, like you know um, monitors equipment sound system so that kind of creates a lot of different um, culture and uh, dynamics I think of the yeah, music scene. I do right now like enjoy to go out to that far, um, you know, far New York area because I want to feel the sound, more real sound of what bands want to create, what DJ wants to create. So it's necessary to go there. That's very interesting. Do you do you find that because the scene is now further geographically apart, do you see it as being as tight-knit as it once, or is it hard to, to meet up with people and exchange ideas and do new things? Mm. Um, I still believe we just have to have action to get there and then meet people. I still believe in it. Um, it is very quick thing, very you know, just a moment thing on the Internet. So, yeah, actually more like a communication to, what, um, to make, make something happen. I feel like still we have to use our analog mindset. That's really interesting because a lot of people are talking now about the kind of SoundCloud revolution and making music on the Internet. Has that at all affected your process or how you create things? It, I, I also love it, too. Like, um, for example, yesterday I saw one truck, truck maker and he, you know, we are like, okay, so let's exchange the SoundCloud, you know, ID. And, the, you know, that's the starting point of knowing people. And I already checked his old songs last night before on my, you know, my bedtime. So, you know, that's what happened. I feel like it's kind of like uh, back in time we had something like, you know, MySpace or something like that. But uh, now it's getting those, you know, more sound clouds or, yeah. So, Mio, you've, you've been doing events all over the city. You were, you were in Pilsen on Friday. Yeah. And then up at the Bohemian National on Saturday. And last night you were over at Elastic Arts. Yeah. 
doing a pretty interesting set, a juke set and mm -hmm. uh, and DJing. So how, how have you found the city so far? Oh, so awesome. I really love Chicago, especially like this time. Like, yeah, luckily, you know, um, you guys always tell me a lot of history of Chicago and that creates a lot of insp inspiration and related to this culture of Chicago. Mike, you know, you just moved to Chicago from uh, from New York, and you've you've talked a lot about books you've edited and 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 some books you've written, and you've got some stuff coming up. How how are you finding Chicago since you've you've come back? Well, I love it. The speed is uh, takes a minute to get used to, but uh, I, you know, especially we're talking about uh, the uh, inundation of Starbucks in uh, Manhattan. That's uh, I find Chicago spirit to be a, a bit stronger these days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Has the you know the money coming into Manhattan has that changed uh, how you view the city? Yeah, it's uh, it is getting harder for artists to survive there, but because of it, we have to push harder to make um, better music, and I still believe it. And my new um, project is called New Optimism, and uh, that's what I'm feeling right now. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you say that because we've talked to a lot of artists at Lumpen Radio about what it's like to be creating art in a challenging time, the kind of time with a president that's not very popular and does things that most of us um, stand in opposition to. What do you feel as responsibility of a musician and artist uh, in, a, in a difficult time like this? Um, mm, yeah, I do feel like, yeah, to not giving up. I think that's very important. And... Um, um try try to work more that's what i feel i feel like uh, it's a, such a challenging time but the, this is kind of like a good test for us to kind of like we can you know go go through or not and um yeah i don't know that much about like in a other city but uh because of it there's more comp uh we say Collaboration is happening in New York City. And the band I came with this time to Chicago, it was like that too. Like, you know, different um, individual got together and make new sounds. So this kind of thing's happening more. And that, I think, creates very um, different era of, um, I think, music. Hitting Left spoke to Pigeon Pagonis, intersex activists, about their career, their fight against discrimination, and why pronouns are so important. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. This is Fred Klonsky, Mike Klonsky, Pigeon Pagonis at WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM, Lumpin Radio. That was the amazing Nina Simone. And, and I want to I, I, I want to apologize again. You're up to ninety thousand. I'm up to ninety thousand. I want to apologize again to Pigeon Pagonis uh, for using the pronoun she, uh, even though I have etched it in my consciousness not to do that. That just shows you how deep yeah. going a lot of this is. Uh, and uh, they have forgiven me. Thank you, Pigeon. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Fred. You were you were asking. Well, you know, you know, we let, let's talk about that for a moment because. Uh, uh, Jamie, do you want to make your, the point you were making before while we were on break? Yeah, I mean, I was just saying it's it's interesting because I noticed that people in the Klonskis in my age bracket, which is basically 50 and, and up, <laughs> um, it's almost impossible for us to wrap our heads around the pronouns and even 
in some ways, I think, to understand at a subconscious level why it's important. However, people in uh, Pigeon's age bracket and the people who are the age of my wife who's in her mid-30s, it's it's very easy. And I, I have wondered whether it mirrors the acceptance uh, of other past civil rights movements that we've seen. I mean, there was a difficulty in uh, the age group before mine in accepting people who were queer, gay, or lesbian. And that, that changed really with the people when I came of age. Intersex and uh, other <clears throat> intersex transsexuality, those things are being accepted, I think, in your generation. And maybe the generation after you will not have any of these things, just as in your generation, it was the civil rights movement for African-Americans changing and the language that changed there. When we think about that, African-Americans in in your day, they were called Negro, you know, and that changed. That's gone away. Now it's African-American. So there was a linguistic shift that also happened there. The New York Times used to write the civil rights movement about the Negro, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Those were in headlines. So language does shift and it's really important to talk about it but i think it's also interesting that some of this is just so hardwired in because of our experiences and it resolves itself in generations anyway. but it's you're right and but i think it's also connected to uh, issues of power uh, the the words we use the language we we use is a is it's more than just about pronouns it's about uh, who controls the language and who controls the way in which we talk about subjects, who's allowed to talk about them, who gets to define who they are and who they're not, and so, uh, so uh, you know, I think you know, we can joke about the uh, you know about the pronoun issue. Uh, uh, I mean, I was out when I was out in Brooklyn this last week uh, with with my, I have a 13 year old uh, granddaughter who's a, at a regular public middle school, and I I said I, I said the pigeon was going to be on the show uh, this week, and uh, 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 pigeons intersex and. Uh, yeah, it was like, uh, so what else is new? I have yeah. friends at school. I know people are. I've watched the BuzzFeed video. Exactly. Exactly. It was like, it was like no big deal. So you're right about the generational thing. But it's also a question. I think it has, we have to be reminded that these are issues of power and control. And, uh, uh, and well, yeah. And I think two things. One thing, if you, if you spliced my blood and my DNA on a microscope, there's literally not a pronoun for me because I encompass so many different genders and sexes in my body. Looking at my sex traits, my reproductive organs, my hormones, my outer appearance, there's not a male or female. You can't just put me on one end. So I have to choose some pronoun that actually accurately represents me. So I've chosen one that we have today, which feels decent, which is they, them, because it doesn't give you, it's not fully she, it's not fully he, right? And the second thing I want to say is I've been listening and reading and learning a lot from Adrian Marie Brown, which is a, a organizer, a brilliant thinker and facilitator outside out of Detroit right now. And her new book, Emergent Strategy, which is really based on a lot of thoughts and conversation with her mentor, Grace Lee Boggs from Detroit, we know who Grace. I, know I know you guys Grace know. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. New so Grace, yes. Grace has this, Grace and others have, and, and now Adrian, speak about this thing, which or this concept called emergent strategy. And one of the roots of that strategy is small, minute, tiny interactions or changes between just, say, individuals can then shift larger um uh, movements or bigger changes in the community. So I think often we get, especially myself, and that it leads to like feeling stuck is like thinking, I need the biggest change possible. How do we organize the most people and get the most bang out of our buck for this movement, this action? But this thinking is like, how do we do the small things between us? And I think language and pronouns is part of that. It's like, like you said, power and control is part of that. So when we're able to reclaim or um, stake a claim on our autonomy, our bodily autonomy, or how we 
um, identify ourselves, then we're doing those minute changes that ultimately ripple out into the community and change across the world in a bigger way. But it's a funny contradiction, isn't it, uh, between, on the one hand, uh, normalizing what has been made uh, not normal, uh, and at the same time, claiming, claiming identity, right? Those, those are, those are ten, that's a tension exists between those, those two things. I know as a teacher, for example, for 30 years, that uh, I had kids who had, special, who had special needs. In order to get services, we had to identify them as, as a category of, of student. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we couldn't, get, we couldn't get the funding unless you identified them as a special. We ran the tests. We did the, the we did, we tried different interventions. IEDs, and, right? IEPs, and, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and in order to get services, they had to have a name. They had to be Right, they, they had to they had to be classified and categorized. categorized At the same time, I was or... I'm, a, I'm a teacher who's trying to have diverse classrooms and want people to be treated as as and to uh, not label people and not right. label people. Mm-hmm. So you have this kind of tension between uh, the, the need to 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 claim identity right. and at the same time. So who gave rise? This is what we were talking about before the break. Is what gave rise to this need for the in the say in the medical profession? Yeah. To I to to classify people in order for them to receive what they ought to, or yeah. or to broaden the question, uh, why are why are we as a uh, culture so uh, so uh, focused on identity on sexual identity? Like, wh- where does that come from? Why are we so concerned with what bathrooms people use? I don't think we're that concerned with it, but why are so many people uh, so uh, emotionally? Uh, you know, tied to a to the concept of easily identifiable uh, gender uh, traits. You know, when it comes to using a bathroom, or comes to uh, you know schooling, or how how people dress, or whatever. Well, so I'm not an I'm I wish I was an expert on this, but I'm I'm not. But I and I wasn't around back when this started happening. But what I've learned is that multiplicity in gender and sexualities and sex types has been around, you know, for a very, 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 very long time in cultures here and all across the globe. And it was around the time of the midi the mid middle ages, the medieval times period, that and then of course like the eighteenth and nineteen hundreds when we see standardization as a priority, industrialization, and like I mentioned, you know, medicine at this time starts to shift from into very different territory because of the advent of anesthesia and um biopsies. So we're now able to knock people out and, and sort of safely go into their body. Now, this was uncharted territory for a while. Um, you would get an amputation and you would not have anesthesia. You know, you might get some alcohol or something or some opium. By the bullet. Yeah, by the <laughs> bullet. But people, it really hit me that just 150 years ago, people didn't have anesthesia for most procedures. And so now we hit the 1900s and there's this, um, they already know about intersex people, which they called hermaphrodites back then. But now there's this new ability to control them. So this threat to the binary way of thinking about men and women or gender and sex was then able to be controlled. It was before it was controlled linguistically. So they would say, you're not a, you're not a hermaphrodite, you're a male pseudo-hermaphrodite. They came up with this classification system to erase us again. And then they said, oh, <laughs> around the 50s, they're like, oh, we could do, um, we could take their organ, their reproductive organs out. We can shape their genitalia and, and make them fit them back into the binary. So 
I think it's really important that, to see that there's a future beyond this because the past behind us was so vast and grand with, with say, let's just look at Native Americans since we're in this country. Um, almost more than half the tribes had more than two sexes and genders, and it was totally valid way of existing in the world. And it isn't until the past, say, 150, 200 years after colonization and after imperialism in this country that that was seen as a threat to sex and gender. And it was um, attacked with, first, it was attacked by co colonists. They literally would throw people who were inhabiting the th any gender outside of man or woman as Europeans saw it to, the, to their dogs and rip them apart as an example to the people around them to say, this is not how you practice gender. And then we see the medical um, shift where the, where the medical clinicians in our society then um, have authority over intersex bodies and, and trans bodies. They, you know, trans was only taken out of the DSM um, very recently as a medical, uh, as a mental illness and, and gay and, and lesbianism too. And so now we, the, the, the last, one of the last fights on that frontier is intersex. Just explain DSM again. Just for uh, those the, I think it's the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, yeah. and there's about five or six um, iterations of it. And it's kind of what, like, if it was, if, if you were, it's what doctors and um, especially psychiatrists have to use to then label people, especially for um, medical, um, uh, what's it called when you get pills? <laughs> medical insurance companies. That's so right. You can label them as having a problem <laughs> so that they can get insured. And so, mm -hmm. like, for me, they won't use intersex. They use disorder of sex development, which is the term they've now put into the diagnostic or the DSM. Um, so, yeah, we have to be othered and labeled <laughs> in yes, order to yeah. get services. Craig Harshaw and Leah Gibson talk about arts, social practice, and movies once a month on Lumpen Radio's Divisive. This excerpt from the June edition of the show features Craig and Leah discussing their practice and how Divisive is assembled. Divisive airs the third Wednesday of every month at 6 p.m. But, like, the challenges that we face um, in all of the personal material that comes up as we right. watch film. As, so there's so much preparation that happens off air. Yeah. Um, and we're processing a lot of things in relationship to what's happening in our lives. And so with camera person, um, uh, with this idea of being uh, doing work for others. Right. And also um, being a critic um, through like, how can you do that work? Collaborative criticism. Right. And then right. you're also a critic in real life. So we talked about that. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm just... Well, I, then I would say, you know, another thing that that we did talk about a little bit was I was thinking about my last performance piece, and I was actually relating it to the last show we did where our guests didn't show up. Yes. Because they got the night wrong, and we had to work with our technician and just improv. Right. And stick things in there, and all of a sudden, oh, there's another song. Yeah, there we go. Um, but I was thinking about a piece I did recently uh, where, where I, in a lot of my pieces, I build a lot of chance elements into it. So um, um, I did a piece in 2014, 2015 called Captured by Your Eyes, which looked at 30 years in my life and 30 years in uh, the life of the actress Faye Dunaway and juxtaposing those two things together. So I went from 3 to 33. Uh, we looked at that period in my life, and I looked at her life from 27 to 57. She was at sort of the top of her career. And... Um, how I how I did the piece is I had several hours of material, but I had it put on note cards with the names of different people that were important in her life. 
And these would be randomly handed out to the audience, and they would hand them to me. And so it would be like three hours of material, but I wouldn't know what order it was coming in. And it would have a different emotional impact on me, which is what I wanted it to do. So I was telling you about one of the first nights I performed it, I got the Roman Polanski card towards the end. And I'd already talked about him, um, his, his assault on a child um, that we, we know about, a, a 13-year-old girl. I'd talked about some of the horrible things he'd done on the set to her, including pulling hair out of her head of Faye Dunaway. And then I got his card almost to end the show, and it was the card where I was going to tell the story about how when he and his mother were on the way to Auschwitz, um, um, the door opened for a moment, and she saw the door, and she threw him out um, into the cornfield, not knowing whether you know he would die, but there, there's a chance that he would survive because she knew that it was an extermination camp she was going to. And... I got overwhelmed with emotion in that moment and didn't think that that was going to that hadn't happened anytime I re- rehearsed it. And th- and in a live performance where you have your whole body and you have everything, you can go ahead and and go into that moment. But I was thinking when you're here and you're disembodied and you're only a voice, if you have a moment like that and you take a long pause, it's just dead air on the radio right. and you can't really do that. So you know, it is different. It's a, it's a different medium. I feel like I'm still getting used to it. Yeah, and I, I also think that the way that we try to do the show is to not just give in to a problem, right? So that where formal problems can, for yeah. us, really clue in to some other cultural meanings that we need to deal with. Yeah. So, um, for example, having a two-hour live radio show, we've gotten feedback from different people who are like hey this is a long show maybe you could chop it up and you know present it in 10 minute segments and we we understand that the show is long um and and are doing that with intention because we want to allow for that uh we're having a conversation right right and so what does it mean to spend time thinking through uh complicated complicated issues mm-hmm. um, in a culture where it's really expected that we it's not just an expectation it's structural right systemic mm-hmm. um, that we don't have a lot of time right period right. but we don't especially don't have a lot of time to talk about our social problems and how we might envision solutions actual concrete solutions yeah. for them um, so even something as simple as what to do with dead air um when we're actually just need a second to think right on the or radio cough. <laughs> or cough right but if there's um i mean how how thinking through that kind of formal problem might be a, a way of thinking about i mean a way of finding solutions to, to real world problems Absolutely. And, you know, you think of somebody like the Filipino filmmaker Lav Diaz, whose films on average are nine to 11 hours long. And part of the whole point of making that is he knows he's making it for a small audience that's only going to make that time of time commitment because the movie's supposed to be 90 minutes to two hours long. Right. Um, and, and you get different rewards from that than you get. And I think a lot of artists are playing with this time. As time speeds up, well, we're going to make, so I'm thinking of of uh, Gordon, can't think of his first name, uh, but but his piece, um, 
24-hour Psycho, as you're talking, where he takes the Alfred Hitchcock's film Psycho and he slows it down frame by frame so that it lasts 24 hours. <laughs> and if you want to stay in the gallery all 24 hours to see the transformation, you can, or you can come back on different days at different times to see you know, how that's working. So I think uh, there's another one about um, The Clock um, by Christopher McCauley, which is a film that where he goes through films and finds shots of all the time in the day, you know, when somebody's looking at their watch, and he's edited it into a 24-hour film. Um, and you can stay there for 24 hours and watch the whole thing, or you can come in. So like at 12 noon, you'll see somebody looking at their watch at 12 noon, and at 1, you'll see somebody at 1. So I do think people are like playing with this idea of like, do we really not have enough time? Has t- have things really gotten faster, or could we restructure our lives in ways that we could have the time that we need? Right. So maybe it's like the radio show's two hours, so yeah. we talk, and you press pause and <laughs> go do something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the thing about the podcast, later, right? right? Yeah. I mean, it's also exciting. It's live, so I know I do know some people tonight that are watching it live. Yeah. And I do know there's a radio set up in my house where some people like watch it live each time. And I think shout out. Thanks for listening. Exactly. And I think that that's really exciting. Um, But also it's exciting that it's a podcast. And if you need to listen to it in 15 minute chunks or half hour chunks, then you can do that and see the power you have. It's it's almost like being the characters in Magnificent Obsession. We're giving you power (laughs) with the gift of the length of two hours. This week on the Trump Diaries, Mitch McConnell gambles and loses for now. Obama's team chokes. Trump says poor people aren't a good fit for his cabinet. And Spicy turns the cameras off. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 154, June 22nd. Republicans unveiled their health bill today to poor reviews. In effect, it is a massive tax cut for the very wealthy that would slash Medicaid and leave some 24 million Americans without coverage. Four Republican senators have already come out in opposition to the bill, imperiling its passage. Insurers and medical groups have also panned the bill. It is unclear whether or not it will become law. And Barack Obama wrote an unusual rebuttal to the bill, calling it a massive transfer of wealth. Obama framed the health care plan as fundamentally inhumane. Obama wrote, quote, the Senate bill unveiled today is not a health care bill. It is a massive transfer of wealth from middle class and poor families to the richest people in America. Trump said today that he had not recorded his conversations with James Comey. I did not make and do not have such recordings, said Trump in a tweet. Trump had previously implied he had damaging tapes of conversations with the ex-FBI director. And hackers successfully altered at least one voter roll in 2016 and stole voter records that contained private information like partial social security numbers. Investigators have not identified whether the hackers in this case were Russian agents. And Trump touted the wealth of Gary D. Cohn, his top economic advisor and a former executive at Goldman Sachs, at a self-aggrandizing rally in Iowa. Trump said, quote, in those particular positions, I just don't want a poor person. Does that make sense? He said of Cohn's job and that of Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. Brilliant business minds are what the economy needs, Trump said. Day 155, June 23rd. 
An Obama administration official says, quote, we choked when it came to deterring or punishing Russia for election interference. Obama approved an operation in late December to embed so-called digital bombs in Russia's infrastructure that could be detonated if the U.S. found itself in an escalating exchange with Moscow. However, that plan was never put into effect, and it is now up to Trump to decide if those bombs should be triggered. It is the hardest thing about my entire time in government to defend, the former senior Obama official said. I feel like we choked. Trump denied obstructing Comey's FBI probe in a Fox and Friends interview. He said his tweet hinting of tapes was intended to influence Comey's testimony before Congress, suggesting it was possible that anyone could have taped their discussions. Trump said in the interview, quote, with surveillance all over the place, you never know what's out there. But I didn't tape, I don't have any tape, and I didn't tape. Trump also said it's bothersome that Robert Mueller is very, very good friends with Comey. Trump claimed that, quote, there's been no collusion, no obstruction, and virtually everybody agrees to that, and that Mueller's team of lawyers are all Hillary Clinton supporters. And the director of national intelligence told House investigators that Trump seemed obsessed with the Russia probe and repeatedly asked him to publicly acknowledge there was no evidence of collusion. At a Senate hearing earlier this month, Dan Coates said Trump never pressured him to do anything inappropriate, but he refused to confirm or deny allegations that Trump asked him to push back against the FBI probe into collusion between the campaign and the Russian government. Sources say that Trump's morning routine begins at 6.30 a.m. with a venting session with his outside legal team in an effort to prevent the Russia probe from consuming him all day. And the Wall Street Journal reports the Justice Department is quietly exploring new legal theories to take on so-called sanctuary cities in court, working to force them to aid the Trump administration's aggressive deportation effort. Day 156, June 24th. Six members of Trump's team on AIDS and HIV have reportedly quit. According to one member, the last straw, or quote, more like a two-by-four than a straw, came in May after the Republican-dominated House passed the American Health Care Act, which he said would have devastating effects on those living with HIV. A statement read, quote, the Trump administration has no strategy to address the ongoing HIV-AIDS epidemic, seeks zero input from experts to formulate HIV policy, and most concerning, pushes legislation that will harm people living with HIV and halt or reverse important gains made in the fight against this disease. Day 157, June 25th. Government websites in Ohio were hacked yesterday to display propaganda from ISIS. The messages said Trump would be held accountable, quote, for every drop of blood flowing in Muslim countries. The hacking was carried out by a group calling itself Team System DZ. And FBI agents have repeatedly questioned former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page about his contacts with Russians and his interactions with the Trump campaign. Over a series of five meetings in March, totaling about 10 hours of questioning, Page repeatedly denied wrongdoing when asked about allegations he may have acted as a kind of go-between for Russia and the Trump campaign. The questioning of Page came more than a month before the Russian investigation was put under the direction of special counsel Robert Mueller. And a Russian government official making $75,000 a year spent nearly $8 million on Trump condos in South Florida. There is no public disclosure of Igor Zorin's properties in Russia, which is illegal under Russian law, and none of Zorin's property purchases using bank financing, meaning he most likely paid cash. And the Trump administration has done little to prevent Russian hacking in the next election. Comey has testified that Trump never asked him about how to stop a future election attack, while Jeff Sessions, who sits on the National Security Council, testified he has not received a classified briefing on Russian election interference. Sean Spicer claims to have never addressed the topic with Trump. Despite blaming the 2016 hacks on Obama, Trump also hasn't said what he would do to stop Russian hacking. Day 158, June 26th. 
The Congressional Budget Office announced today 22 million people will lose their insurance under the Republican health care bill, strengthening a drumbeat of opposition. Attacks are coming from across the spectrum, with the American Medical Association now also out against it. Only one senator, Dean Heller of Nevada, who is under tremendous pressure in his state to preserve Obamacare, has come out in stark terms against it. The bill is an unapologetic and massive tax cut for the very wealthy that would slash Medicaid. And the Supreme Court allowed limited parts of Trump's Muslim ban to go into effect today, but the justices imposed strict limits. Trump hailed the court's decision to hear arguments on the ban cases in October, saying it was a clear victory for national security. Intriguingly, Trump's original ban was only for 90 days and was allegedly put in place to give the government time. Over 150 days have now passed. And Trump tweeted that Obama colluded or obstructed on Russia. The Democrats have become nothing but obstructionists. They have no policies or idea. All they do is delay and complain. They own Obamacare. The reason that President Obama did nothing about Russia after being notified by the CIA of meddling is that he expected Clinton would win and did not want to rock the boat. He didn't choke. He colluded or obstructed and did the Dems and crooked Hillary no good. The real story is that Obama did nothing after being informed in August about Russian meddling. With four months looking at Russia under a magnifying glass, they have zero tapes of tea people colluding. There is no collusion and no obstruction. I should be given apology. And Jared Kushner finalized a $285 million loan from a bank trying to settle a federal mortgage fraud case and made charges it aided a possible Russian money laundering scheme. The loan came a month before the election and both cases were settled in December and January. This is Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank is also Trump's biggest lender. Day 159, June 27th. The Republican health care bill was pulled from the calendar amidst mounting opposition from across the spectrum. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had hoped to push the bill before the July 4th recess to spare his caucus angry town hall meetings with constituents. At least six Republican senators are currently opposed to the bill. Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, Ron Johnson, Dean Heller, and Susan Collins. Failure to repeal the health care law would mean the GOP would lose its opportunity to do a partisan rewrite and would have to enter into bipartisan negotiations with Democrats to save the insurance markets. And CNN has retracted a report that congressional investigators were looking into a meeting between the Trump transition team member Anthony Scaramucci and the head of a Russian investment fund. Three CNN journalists involved in the story's publication, including a Pulitzer Prize winner, resigned in the wake of the retraction. And a framed copy of Time magazine has been hung up in at least five of Trump's golf clubs. Donald Trump, The Apprentice is a television smash, reads the big headline. Above the Time nameplate, there is another headline in all caps. Trump is hitting on all fronts, even TV. The cover is a fake. There was no March 1st, 2009 issue of Time Magazine, and there was no issue at all in 2009 that had Trump on the cover. And Deputy White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders blasted the media for coverage of what she called the Trump-Russia hoax, prompting a tangle with the reporter who asked Trump's White House to stop inflaming the press corps. Sanders told reporters during the White House briefing that the constant barrage of fake news directed at Trump has garnered a lot of his frustration. Trump added in a pair of tweets that he called CNN fake news, as well as the usual suspects, NBC, CBS, ABC, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. Day 160, June 28th. At least 10 Trump aides have now hired lawyers for the Russia probe or are planning to do so. Inside the White House, Trump, Pence, and Jared Kushner have hired private attorneys, as have former campaign advisors Michael Caputo, Boris Epstein, and Roger Stone, among others. 
and a consulting firm led by Paul Manafort, who chaired Donald Trump's presidential campaign for several months last year, filed forms on Tuesday showing that his firm received $17 million over two years from a political party that dominated the Ukraine before its leader fled to Russia in 2014. This filing makes Manafort the second former senior Trump advisor to file as a foreign agent, alongside the disgraced Michael Flynn. And Sean Spicer again banned cameras in a press briefing session. Spicer has allowed question and answer sessions with reporters to be televised just six times in the past six weeks. Multiple reporters asked, quote, why are the cameras off? Spicer eventually answered, quote, some days we'll have them, some days we won't. The president is going to speak today in the Rose Garden. I want the president's voice to carry the day. And the latest Ipsos poll shows Trump's approval rating slipping again, down to 34%. Trump is also shedding Republican support, slipping 10 points in the last week alone. These are the Trump Diaries. Contra Tiempo spoke to Pilsen artist and muralist Marcos Raya about the fate of the one-time Casa Aslan. The building has been sold to developers and its iconic murals dating to 1971 were covered over last week. Contra Tiempo, Lumpen's arts and literature show, presented in Spanish, airs every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Buenos días, estamos aquí en Contratiempo Radio. Mi nombre es Marco Polo y estoy con mi amiga Stephanie Manríquez y hoy... Tenemos una mesa de lujo. Nos acompaña el señor Marcos Raya. Buenos días. Buenos días. Buenos días. La Casa Slam fue creada por expandilleros y veteranos de la guerra de vida. El, el Lompen son los que agarraron la Casa Slam. Yo no digo este Lompen, no estamos platicando, sino uh -huh. el Lompen proletariado. Uh -huh. uh, desafortunadamente, yo pienso que lo que faltó ahí en ese, en ese, en ese grupo fue... El, este, uh, algún intelectual que diera más dirección a sus, a sus acciones, ¿no? Sino que se convirtió más bien en un grupito paramilitar, casi, casi como tipo pandilla, ¿no? Yo le doy, yo no, no le doy todo el crédito a los, a los Brambrays, le doy crédito a los verdaderos activistas que estuvieron ahí, en, 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 en personas que agarraban trailers llenos de basura y la dompeaban allí en la 18 y la Ashland para que el, el alderman se preocupara de levantar la basura del barrio. Esos activistas, los activistas que sacaron a los estudiantes para pelear para que pusieran la Benito Juárez, la gente que anduvo ahí metida dentro del barrio, personas como Ruy Lozano que quería ser el próximo mayor de Chicago, que no lo mataron. Y hay todo un complot, ¿no? ¿De quién, quién lo mandó a matar? Él era, él, él, él fue y cuando yo le dije que mi mamá donde trabajaba, mi mamá no tenía unión, se fue y se les puso unión. Esos son los verdaderos activistas. ¿Y con qué nos quedamos? ¿Qué bueno, hay? ¿Ahora? Sí. Bueno, hay personas como mi amiga. <ríe> <ríe> uh, hay personas como uh, Francisco Piña. Hay personas como... O sea, eh, hay activistas, ¿no? Y tienen más posibilidades de, 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 de organizar, ¿no? Pero a mí me, me sacó un poco de onda cuando veo, veo en el periódico en la, en la televisión de que está esta gente llorando ahí enfrente de Casas que porque les quitaron. ¿qué? Me digo yo a mí mismo, ¿por qué no hicieron esto antes? Por favor, esto es absurdo. Yo no estoy del lado de los de pelo, pero estoy del lado de... Yo, yo nunca me he ido del barrio. Uh -huh. Yo iba a una cuadra de ahí, Casas Se me hace absurdo porque eso se hubiera hecho antes. Se necesitaban 300 mil y tanto de dinero. Eso se puede conseguir fácil. Sí, ¿por qué no lo hicieron? No entiendo. ¿Por qué quieren volver a pintar algo ahí 
en un edificio donde obviamente va a ser un, un edificio para gente con dinero, no va a ser para la comunidad. Eso es absurdo. Es como irte a, a, la, a la Division. Yo no fui a la Division por 15 años y cuando me decidí ir, me asusté porque, ¿dónde ando? ¿Dónde estoy? Ese era un barrio puertorriqueño. No quedó ni una tienda puertorriqueña en, en, en la Division. ¿Sabes qué quedó? Un mural de Jan Weber. Ajá. Y se Ajá. ve curioso. ¿Qué está haciendo ahí ese mural? Histórico posiblemente. Pero no tiene ningún impacto. Sí, es lo único que quedó. Eso es lo que va a pasar aquí en, 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 en Pielsen. Y tampoco abalanzarse y decir, queremos más morales. Esa no es la respuesta. A estas alturas, cuando se pintaron los morales en, la, en, la, en los 70 era porque estábamos gritando, aquí estamos. Estamos creando una comunidad. Es un grito de, de, de ayúdenos. ¿no? no tenemos barrio. O sea, fue un acto sumamente político. Y no solamente en Pielsen, no también con, con la comunidad negra, con, hasta con los blancos. Uh, hubo movimientos muralistas en, en, en todo Chicago. Y yo pinté mi primer mural en la Taylor. Y ahorita lo estoy exhibiendo en, en Ucrania. Y no se le da mucha atención a, a, a ese mural, ¿no? ¿Por qué? Porque no tiene los símbolos disque chicanos. No uso esos símbolos yo en mi trabajo. Uh -huh. Y aún así yo, yo sí este, uh, simpatizo con, el, con, con, con las aspiraciones de los chicanos de aquel tiempo. Porque... Y no, y sí, fueron los chicanos los que, los que crearon ese movimiento chicano. Fue hasta los ochentas que cambió todo en Pearson cuando llegó el éxodos de mexicanos. Hasta con los bombs que yo tomaba, yo tomaba con bombs, que me platicaban de sus historias chistosas. Uh -huh. De repente, ya estoy tomando, ya no estoy tomando con bombs, estoy tomando con criminales que llegaron de México. Es cuando la situación se puso medio peligrosa. Es cuando dejé de tomar, dije, ya basta. Yo, yo tomaba con compitas que me platicaban de cómo iban a piscar y que la fregada y que porque eh, hay que cambiar todo se mexicaniza México y para, para cerrar con broche de oro nace el, el Museo Mexicano todo cambió eh, tú crees en ciclos digo eh, estamos hablando de que un pilsen gris por, un, uh -huh. por unos um, en los instantes que tú llegas a después de la Taylor, eh, ¿tú qué crees? Creo que hay ciclos y en algún momento eh, que el barrio ¿no? se mejore, que haya una mejora tanto económica para, el, para, los, para los habitantes de Pilsen, tanto como calles limpias, eh, recolección de basura, eh, mm. seguridad, eh, menos pandillas... ¿De qué manera se crea ese balance y de qué manera se pueden cerrar los ciclos? ¿O de qué manera son los ciclos para que no haya el cambio total? Digo, creo que la gente va y viene y va a seguir, va y bueno, viene. Mira, eso es un buen punto que me preguntas, porque a mí me afecta personalmente, ¿no? Primero, hay un problema. El arte chicano y mexicano está totalmente devaluado. Es más, no vale. ¿Por qué? ¿Acaso nos afecta de que la gente sin papeles les pagan lo que les dé la gana? Eso es parte de porque el, el pintor mexicano también va a dar a, a ese nivel de lompen. 
donde no es nadie y se le paga lo que la gente quiera y, y mueren en la pobreza. No. El problema es no tener la audacia y las posibilidades de decir, ok, si todo está cambiando, pues mi trabajo va a cambiar. Lo que yo cobro por un cuadro se va a triplicar. Lo mismo está pasando con los restaurantes. Cuando yo iba a La Esperanza, yo iba ahí porque yo me podía desayunar por tres dólares. Y esto hace apenas cinco años. Ya se pusieron las pilas, ahora vas y te cobran igual que lo que te cobran en otros restaurantes. Tienes que pagar más de 10 dólares por un desayuno. Es automáticamente el cambio. Lo que también se está viendo es la muerte de las fachadas y de que cómo se decoraban los restaurantes en los 50 y en los 60 en Pearson y en la, en la 26. Esas fachadas, incluyendo el trébol, ya se ven fuera de lugar quieras o no lo quieras. So, o el trébol saca su dinero que ya se hicieron ricos, que esa gente puso más borrachos que, fabricaron más borrachos que José Alfredo Jiménez. <risa> y sigue. <risa> y sigue. Entonces, saquen esa lana, tráiganse la de México, porque es lo que hacen, se la llevan para allá. Y reconstruyan el Nuevo León. Ah, digo, este, el, el, la Casa del Pueblo. Oh, el, no, trébol. El, trébol. el trébol reconstruyen el trébol y traen a sus borrachitos mejor ¿no? Porque van, a, van a gastar dinero como en cualquier otro lugar cambien la fachada póngase a nivel que pongan otra rocola por lo menos sí. ¿no? lo que van a hacer es lo que acaba de hacer el 240 el 240 que le cerraron la cantina por, por ruidosos y balaceras era dueño de, ese, de esa esquina este y según él me decía no yo no, yo no le rento a, a güeros y dije yo oh, eres uno de los de aquellos, de aquellos. <risa> no, de un día a otro, ¿sabes? Lo vendió. Ahorita lo están reconstruyendo. Y no dejó nada. <risa> lo mismo pasó, y es posible que pueda pasar con el Nuevo León, la Casa del Pueblo. Todos esos, esos negocios que empezaron, la mayoría empezaron para allá, para la Roosevelt y la Hostel. La Casa del Pueblo estaba cerca de la Roosevelt y la Hostel. Uh, el esfuerzo estaba allá por la Taylor. Entonces, todo, todo eso está muriendo, ¿no? Toda, la gente de los 50 ya, ya casi ya se murieron todos. Marcos, ¿con qué, con qué nos dejas? Un, una, ¿Una recomendación, un pensamiento? Un, un... Quisiéramos quedarnos a platicar un poquito más, pero el tiempo ya, ya, ya nos llama a otras labores. Yo digo, the future is bright and it's going to be all right. <risa> No, no, es que te digo, es posible que vayamos a volver a los, a los años horribles de, 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 de los 70 y, y más horrible todavía a los años de los 50. Eso es donde entra la, la verdadera resistencia de los artistas, de, de, de los maestros, de los estudiantes, de los obreros. Eso es lo que nos tenemos que tener que preparar. Y eso es lo que yo pienso que es lo que la gente está... Los, aquellos que quieran pintar murales que lo estudien bien y de qué manera van a ayudar a que nosotros lleguemos a ese futuro brillante, ¿no? Y no ser siempre, estarse uno quejándose y viéndose como víctima. Eso ya pasó. A estas alturas tienes que aprender a nadar o te ahogas. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. 
The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpin' Theme, Background and Interstitial Music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Thank you.